Well, you might take one look at today's sermon title and think, oh, boy, where is he going with this? He should have extended his vacation. But uh, God's wrath is an uncomfortable topic to talk about. You know, his love is much easier to talk about, but we cannot separate God's attributes out as if we choose which ones we're going to like and which ones we're going to dislike. God is the perfection and the fullness of all of his divine attributes, and they are all good, including his wrath. Would God be truly good if he was not outraged at injustice and evil? We'd like to ignore God's wrath at times, you know, because it seems so severe and it offends our self-absorbed, touchy-feely, religious sentimentality. It's easier to just follow a God that we create and control than it is to follow the true God who is beyond our control. But the joy of knowing God through Christ is knowing God as he truly is in the fullness of of his holiness and glory. Many people have a paper-thin joy because they don't know God as he is. As they dilute the severity of God's wrath, they dilute the uh, the magnitude of the accomplishments of Christ and therein dilute the depth of God's love for them. Now they have a watered-down view of God and his love for them, so they are less impressed. And God's infinite value is obscured, it's hidden from them. When the extent of the gospel is diluted, so are gratitude and joy in God. Listen, many churches, many pastors, many professors and writers want to change what God is like. And they can't even see that their revision of God is leading people away from God and away from their lasting joy in God. We want to know and love and adore God as he actually is. Christ only appeals to people who fear God's impending wrath, who desire to avoid it and desire to draw close to God. Christ is not so exciting for people content to live in sin. It is the wrath of God along with the mercy and grace of God that drives sinners to Christ to experience the love of God. Without God's wrath, there is little to no urgency to repent and treasure Christ. And when people refuse to repent and treasure Christ, Romans 2.5 says, They are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Nahum 1-2 says, The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Jesus said to fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It is the severity of God's wrath that showcases the enormity of God's grace. Imagine that you're guilty and you're on death row. As you solemnly walk the dreadful green mile, instead of approaching a chair, you are approaching a cup, a cup that is brimming with God's terrifying wrath. You must drink it. 
And you know that when you raise the cup to drink, you will never drain the cup dry. You will drink of God's just fury forever, and then you hear a voice. I will drink it for them. I will drink every drop and give them another cup, a cup overflowing with the pleasures of God. I have one point for you, and I prayed that you would treasure it with all of your heart. Here it is. Jesus picked up the cup of God's wrath and drank every drop for you so that you could enjoy a loving relationship with God through him. We're jumping right back into the book of John, the 18th chapter, where John takes us from the upper room into the Garden of Gethsemane. It was during the time of Passover. Hundreds of thousands of people were flooded into Jerusalem for the feast, so there were likely over one million people in the city. The conspiracy against Jesus was unfolding during the last hours before the cross. John was writing this historic account so that his readers would believe in Christ and be saved. And so John wrote as an evangelist, and John wrote also as an apologist to make a case, a defense for Christ. His focus was different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and yet his book accompanies the other gospels very well. Jesus knew it was his hour. The cross was looming, and and we're going to see just how calculated Jesus was during his journey to the cross. Everything that he did was intentionally self-sacrificing. It's amazing. Jesus chose to be exposed. Now, if powerful people want to kill you, The best thing to do is to immediately change your appearance, to change your identity, to change your location, and then to change your routine entirely. So in other words, you need to disappear and you need to blend in. The more exposed you are, the greater the threat. I do not know this from personal experience. I don't think I'm running from anybody who wants to kill me, uh, but maybe I just don't know. So in the first century, the most prominent and powerful Jews in the world, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees wanted Jesus dead, and they were scheming in order and seeking to kill him. Now, there was a time when Jesus withdrew, that he hid from his assailants. You might remember John 11 when the death plots were forming and Jesus headed to Ephraim uh, to stay with his disciples, but not because he was scared, but because it wasn't his time to die. And as John puts it, his hour had not yet come. But in John 18, Jesus didn't run. It was time. Right before they left the upper room, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Verse 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, which probably refers to all that he had said at the upper room, John 13 through 17, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, the brook was a wadi or a seasonal stream which flowed during the rainy season between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples crossed that brook um, Kidron and entered a garden that was just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Matthew and Mark call it Gethsemane, which means oil press. The garden was an olive orchard and, and where uh, olives were harvested, and then they were placed beneath these big millstones 
And the pressure from the millstones ground the olives, pressing out the oil within the olives. So it's hard not to, in our minds, see some foreshadowing between the oil press of Gethsemane and the agony to come for Jesus. Gethsemane was a familiar place. In fact, verse 2 says that Judas also knew the place because Jesus would take his disciples there and worship or pray or teach or whatever. So why did Jesus pick a familiar place to go? It was calculated. It was was a calculated move of submission and surrender. He was relinquishing his life. Remember John 10, 18? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And as we read this narrative, we are watching Jesus lay down his life. Back in John 13, as you uh, can probably remember, Judas left. He left Jesus and the other disciples, left the upper room in order to coordinate the details of Christ's arrest. And verse 3 explains his return. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas procured a band of soldiers or a Roman spera, which refers to a Roman cohort of troops a full spera had the potential strength, get this, of a thousand men. 760 foot soldiers and 240 cavalry. But usually a spera was about 600 men. And sometimes it's referred to, to about 200 men, 200 soldiers. Because of the influx of Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover, Roman soldiers were transferred to Jerusalem and stationed in the temple complex to keep order in the city. Jesus procured this big, massive group, likely hundreds of men who were highly trained soldiers. At least a lot of them were. The other week, my, my son Peter, he saw a house that was decorated for Christmas. And as we drove by, he goes, that's overboard. As he's looking at the light. I, I got a kick out of that. I thought that was hilarious. But... Um, we might, we might look at this scene and we might think that it was overboard to bring hundreds of soldiers to capture one very, very kind man. Uh, but consider the political tension between Jews and Rome. The increased population in Jerusalem, the expectation of the Messiah, and the loyal followers of Jesus. And so the armed group was precautionary. The leaders feared uproar, uproar among the people. On top of the Roman soldiers, there were officers uh, from the chief priests and the Pharisees. These were guys that were deployed from the Sanhedrin uh, to to assist in the arrest. Now, we don't know how many men there were exactly, uh, but it's reasonable to think it was hundreds, including many highly trained combatants. They brought lanterns and torches for visibility, and they brought weapons in case violence broke out. Uh, violence broke out. Now, Matthew called the group a great crowd with swords and clubs. They meant business. They meant business. It was time to put an end to Jesus. You know what is so awesome? Jesus was ready for them. He was ready. Swords and clubs were completely unnecessary because Jesus was resolved to go peacefully and to go quietly. It is single-handedly the most heroic thing that the world has ever known. Instead of choosing to retreat, Jesus chose 
to come forward. Verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, stop there. Insert a divine flash forward, a look into the future. Jesus is omniscient, so he knew what was coming. He could visualize that within hours he would be betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, spat on, punched, slapped, mocked, denied, severely beaten, crowned with thorns, whacked on the head with a reed, shamefully paraded through Jerusalem, and crucified on a cross. His capture meant excruciating suffering and death. But beyond physical pain, it meant suffering the wrath of God. That was the worst part of it by far. And I, and I heard someone, I, I read it somewhere, that regarding the passion of the Christ, that some people would see the passion of the Christ and they would see, man, now I have such more of, a, a, of an image and an understanding of what Christ uh, went through on the cross. And, and this person said, absolutely not, impossible, because nobody can feel the weight of the wrath of God on Jesus Christ. The physical pain was nothing. That's not what he, yeah, it was great. Yes, he would feel it as a man, What was more than that was the wrath of his father. So consider verse four carefully. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? He didn't run. He didn't hide. He didn't even cry out to God to send 12 legion of angels to wipe out the mob. He simply stepped forward and he identified and drew attention to himself. Jesus chose to identify himself. They told him who they were looking for, Jesus of Nazareth. Notice Jesus didn't say, what's that over there? And then run out the back of of the garden. He stayed. You see, he wanted them to know that he was Jesus of Nazareth, and that they had come to capture him. That was the whole plan. That was the idea. Verse 5 is one of the coolest verses in the Bible. I love verse 5. And kids, I want you to listen in. All kids, if you like superhero stuff, this is even better because this actually happened. This is real. So I want you to listen to this. When the crowd of armed soldiers, I've always been fascinated by centurions, Roman centurions, these awesome helmets and swords. I love that stuff. These, the crowd of armed soldiers and the temple police stated who, had they, who they had come for. Jesus said two simple words, ego, a me. The same two words he said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, ego, a me, I am. All the well-known translations, including the ESV, which I love, insert he in verse five, I am he, and that's fine, But consider the seven I am statements of Jesus, particularly in John. Consider John 8, 58, and consider that God identified himself to Moses as I am who I am. When Jesus identified himself, I want you to watch what happened with Judas standing right there with the crowd of armed soldiers, with the mob, Jesus said, I am, and they drew back and fell to the ground. That's power. 
the weight and force of his self-identification caused armed Roman soldiers, the most highly trained, the most highly skilled warriors in the world, to back away and fall to the ground, which was a common response to divine revelation. In Scripture, you'll see that. The mouth of Jesus is power. Jesus asked again, whom do you seek? They answered again, Jesus of Nazareth, to which Jesus responded, I told you that I am. Ego me. You see, Jesus was in control of this moment. Jesus chose to be exposed, chose to come forward, and chose to identify himself not only as Jesus of Nazareth, but as God. His statement did two important things. Number one, it identified him as the one. And number two, it made the mob say that they came for him and not his disciples. They didn't come for them. He really cared about preserving his disciples in this moment. You see, Jesus chose to protect his disciples. During the Civil War, in July of 1862, I found out that Union General John Dix and Confederate General Daniel H. Hill created a soldier valuation scale. And this valuation scale was based on the rank of soldiers, and it was used in the exchange of captured um, soldiers. One commanding general was worth 60 privates. Generals don't surrender to protect 11 privates. <laughs> That's a good way to lose a war. But in this case, it was the only way to win the war. As he gave himself up, Jesus made sure to protect the 11 and told the mob, so if you seek me, let these men go. You don't need them. You came from me, right? He's just making that clear, making sure everybody knows who the target is, and that clarified for everyone that he was the target, not his disciples. Jesus set the terms of his own capture, and he said these words in order to fulfill something that he had said earlier in the upper room, verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. That's a flashback, a flashback to John 17, verse 12. Jesus wasn't going to lose any of his true disciples. And when the torches and swords came, he protected them, both physically and spiritually. He made sure they only took him and made sure the immature faith of his disciples was preserved. This was calculated. This was loving. This was masterful. Watch what else Jesus did. Peter was fearless. You gotta give him that. He was fearless but stupid. But anyway, he whipped out a sword and he tried to kill one of the high priest's slaves named Malchus. Peter was likely going for Malchus's head, trying to stab him in the face or something. Either Malchus moved or somehow deflected Peter's sword and it caught his ear, cut it clean off. Take note that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, carried a sword for self-defense. Where'd the sword come from? Isn't it cool that he had a sword? Uh, and, and would you believe that Jesus actually encouraged it? That night, before they entered Gethsemane, Jesus told them, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. 
Jesus encouraged his disciples to buy and carry Roman short swords, which were used for close combat. And when he told them to buy swords, the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, look, here are two swords. So they had some already, and Jesus said, it is enough. Now, just an interesting note, our pacifist friends, there are plenty in this area, need to think about that one. I think it's cool they were packing swords. Now, of course, it was out of control and inappropriate and wrong and sinful for Peter to attack Malchus and try to kill him. What are you doing, Peter? Jesus rebuked Peter for it. Here in verse 11, Jesus said, put the sword into the sheath. Come on, Peter. You can't go around stabbing people when your Lord is sacrificing himself. You see, Peter didn't understand what was going on. He was fearless, but he was careless. And Jesus didn't like it. He put a stop to it before a massive slaughter could ensue. Think about it. Two swords, 11 men, Hundreds of arms. This is not working out well. This is a bloodbath waiting to happen. But when Peter hit Malchus' right ear, Luke mentions that Jesus healed his ear. You know, what a way to diffuse the tension and to give every single person there something to think about. One other thing. Why mention Malchus' name? First, Malchus is a name found on ancient Arabian inscriptions. So Malchus is a legitimate name that was used at that time period. Second, it is reasonable to think that Malchus was still alive when John wrote the gospel. So John's readers could have possibly gone to Malchus and talked to him about what happened. Or at least talked to people who knew Malchus and people who perhaps were there that day. You see, the name helps authenticate the history. It's an important little detail. Jesus chose to be exposed, chose to come forward and identify himself, and chose to protect his disciples. But the last part of verse 11, the last part explains why he would do all of that. Here's the big idea. Jesus chose to drink the cup of God's wrath. Peter tried to prevent what God had graciously willed. So Jesus said to Peter, and this is significant, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What cup? What cup had the Father given his son to drink? And we need to understand the metaphor biblically. We can't just insert something of what we think cup is. What does scripture throughout trace cup? Cup can mean different things. So we're going to go to a few scriptures so that I can show you the imagery behind this statement. In Matthew 26, verse 39, you might want to just jot these references down, check them out later on your own because I'm going to move through them quickly. Jesus asked the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he asked, we're told, because he was very sorrowful, even to death. Have you been that sorrowful to the point of death? Jesus was because of the cup. His agony over the cup was so intense that Luke tells us his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What cup could cause the Son of God that much angst? Well, let's keep digging. Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8 say this. It is God who executes judgment. 
putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In the hand of God is a cup of divine judgment. Isaiah 51 verse 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Later in verse 22, God mercifully says to his people, These precious words, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. In the hand of God is a cup of divine wrath. In Jeremiah 25, God said to Jeremiah, verse 15, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And if you jump to the revelation of Jesus Christ, this is from Jesus Christ. Chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, you read that an angel said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hands, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Later in Revelation 16, verse 19, it says, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Please understand, it was not the pain of Roman flogging or crucifixion that tormented Jesus In Gethsemane, he was tormented because he would be crushed by God. It was the anticipation of his father's holy wrath that agonized him. Why did Jesus need to drink the cup? He was innocent. That cup wasn't for him. He drank it because it was God's plan to save his people. It was for our sake that God made his son to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus agonized over becoming sin, bearing the sins of God's people in his body and drinking the cup of the Father's righteous fury down to the dregs. That was the cup that God had given Jesus to drink. He drank it for us. But it is our cup to drink. The cup will not Pass from us because we are good people. Because we do good things. It will not pass from us because we go to church. It will not pass from us because we have given it our best shot. There is only one way for the cup of God's righteous fury to pass from us. We must trust that Jesus, our precious Savior, already drank the cup for us. I want to read for you an excerpt from an emotional blog post by Tim Challies titled, Take This Cup Away From Me. At least it should be emotional for us. Because this is what Jesus did for us. He drained the cup dry. Tim writes this. Before the world was created, Jesus had agreed to drink this cup to save the ones he loves 
He would not just take a sip of it, but would drink to the bottom of the cup until there was nothing left. How his spirit must have assailed him as our Lord, as fully human, as he was fully God, waited to drink this cup. Finally, hours after he began, Jesus did what no other person could ever do. He emptied that cup drinking down the last drops of God's wrath until there was no more. The wrath that deserved to be poured out against me was consumed by the one who loves me more than I can ever know. Having swallowed the last drops, Jesus shouted out in triumph, it is finished. The work had been done. Knowing that his task was complete, Jesus turned his gaze to heaven and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At that moment, he yielded up his spirit and returned to fellowship with his father. When Jesus looked at Peter and said, shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? He was implying, I must drink the cup that the father has given me. In order to save you, Peter, and in order to save everyone else who by faith trusts in me, who clings to me, who abides in me, who repents of their sins and turns to me for life, I had to drink it for them. And this will glorify my Father. My friends, at that moment in Gethsemane, Jesus was fully committed to pick up the cup of God's wrath and drink every drop for you so that you, my friend, could experience intimacy with God, relationship with God, knowing and loving God and have him adore you and rejoice over you. He was willing to pick up that cup and drink. Jesus was willing to do this for you because God loves you. It is the wrath of God alongside of the mercy and grace of God that proves to you that God loves you through Christ. If you are in Christ, if you are united to Christ by faith, then God's wrath has already been drunk by Christ and there is none left for you, not a drop. You will never drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus drank it so that you could drink from another cup. Pastor Stephen Lee explained it this way. This is beautiful. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that he could extend the cup of God's fellowship to us. We don't get wrath anymore, he says. Now we get God. We get the sweet, satisfying reality of his eternal fellowship in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ, together we will drink from the sweetest cup of God's fellowship forever, and we will never drink it dry. We will drink and be satisfied forever. Fear the cup of God's wrath. And at the same time, Drink from the cup of sweet fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to sing a hymn together. It was written by Chris Anderson. 
And I don't think that there is a more fitting song to sing after this sermon than Salvation's Cup. The lyrics are profound. The tune is beautiful. And Jerusalem Church, I want us to really sing. Can we belt it out? Even if you don't know it. Let's say you have the worst voice in the world. (laughs) Let it fly, baby. Let us worship with one unashamed and unified voice. I want us to rejoice together in what the Father has done for us through His Son. Along with your voice, I want you to put your heart into it. Put your heart into it. Celebrate that Jesus drank the dregs of God's cup of holy wrath for you.